Most people think uh, that Christmas is Christmas Day, 25th of December. But in fact, Christmas lasts from Christmas Day until the 5th of January. That whole period is Christmas. And then on the 6th of January, we have Epiphany. And Epiphany starts on that day and goes through to the 2nd of February, which is the Feast of the Presentation of Jesus at the Temple, or if you're English, Candlemas, or American or Canadian, lots of parts in the church. Uh, And if you count up all the days of Christmas and Epiphany, you'll get the magic number 40. So Christmas and Epiphany go hand in hand and are the kind of two halves of a similar season which together make up the 40 days. And we are in the middle of the season called Epiphany. And Epiphany has some significant festivals in it. The first is Epiphany on the 6th of January, which is the feast where we remember the coming of the Magi to see the infant Jesus, as is recorded in Matthew, not in Luke. So uh, we have that festival which is an astounding story in itself, uh, given all the uh, rules against using stars to attain knowledge in the Old Testament, uh, and what happens to people who do use the stars. So you should look that up. And then uh, the next week we have the next big thing, which is the baptism of Jesus, and we had that last week, and it all culminates in the presentation of Jesus in the temple. Now the theme that runs all through that, the theme of Epiphany, really can be summarised in one word, which is theophany. The divine manifestation to humanity. Or to put it another way, the revelation of God through the life, ministry and teaching of Jesus. It's a time where we specifically ask, what is God revealing about God's self in the life, ministry and teaching of Jesus, and in particular, the coming of the Magi to Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, and the presentation of Jesus at the temple. So divine revelation is what Epiphany is all about, which is why you have that strange little head with a light bulb on the front of your pew sheet. (coughs) Now, last week, as I said, we had the baptism of Jesus, according to Matthew, and uh, this week we have it again, according to John. I'm not really sure why we have it uh, two Sundays in a row, apart from its reasonably importance. I'm guessing the reason is that year A is Matthew, and we're in the year A, so we will spend the year reading Matthew's Gospel And year B is Mark, and we spent two years ago focusing on Mark's Gospel. And year C is Luke, and we spent last year looking at Luke's Gospel. Uh, But there is no year D. There is no year for John's Gospel. There are conversations about having a year D, but at the moment there is no year D. So John has to be kind of sneaked in wherever possible. So Mark is quite a short gospel, so you get lots of John in that year. Uh, And I think they just thought, well, we need to have John's gospel 
John's version of Jesus' baptism somewhere, so I will pop it in here. That looks like a good place. Now, John's story is different from the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the Synoptics. They have very similar sources, so the story holds together pretty much the same. John's sources are very different, so his story is different. The timetable of the story is different. How he tells the story is different. What he includes in his gospel is different. And so this baptism story is different from Matthew, Mark, Luke. And I will let you go home and read them and work out what is different. Now, one of the things that marks John as different is that he is playing in a much more uh, upfront way compared to the other three. A thing that one of the authors I read described as theological politics. Now, what are the theological politics that John, the gospel writer, is playing in telling the story about John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus? Now, I'm not going to use John anymore. I'm just going to talk about the gospel writer and uh, the Baptist because there are just way too many Johns in the story. Is also John, Peter, and Andrew's father. So wipe out the name John and just use what they were or who they were. There is no disputing that John and uh, you know, used it. the Baptist and Jesus are linked. All the Gospels link Jesus and the Baptist and most of the historical references would link these two together. The question is, who is the most important? And clearly, from the Gospel writers, John's Gospel, there are a number of people who would say that John is the most important. He was the oldest, he was first, his teaching was much more what people expected, and Jesus was simply the, the disciple, the one who came second, that kept John's message going. So John is the one you have to pay attention to. Now, this wasn't a small group. We know from Paul and from the book of Acts that there were a number of people that the disciples encountered who knew of John's teaching and his baptism, and they then had to tell them about Jesus' teaching. There are today a group that come out of Iraq called Mandians uh, who, for whom the chief prophet is John the Baptist. So that's 2,000 years later. And they uh, were based in Iraq but over the last 30 or 40 years because of the troubles there are now dispersed around the world and there is quite a significant community of them in Australia. So this wasn't just an academic question. This was a real Theological question. Who is the most important? And John, the story we heard from the Gospel of John this morning makes it very clear that for the Baptist himself, Jesus was the more important. Yes, I came first, but I am a forerunner to this one who comes second and is younger but is the one that I am pointing to. That's the whole point of this morning's, first part of this morning's story, and why John tells his baptism story as he does. 
the gospel writer is using the story and using the story around the Baptist himself to say to the followers of the Baptist, you need to let go of your theological baggage. The theological baggage that says John the Baptist came first and is most important. You need to let go of some of your most sacred beliefs. Only when that happens, you will be open to everything that Jesus offers you. Sounds a pretty simple and straightforward lesson. As I thought about that, I thought, it's quite a good message for us. I wonder what theological beliefs we hold that stop us really hearing what the Gospels are all about. What are the theological baggage we hold on to that prevent us experiencing the divine revelation through the life, the ministry and the teaching of Jesus? Well, here's a couple of examples of ways that we struggle to really get what the Gospel writers offer us. In the Gospel we heard this morning, Jesus is referred to several times by the Baptist as the Lamb of God. So, time for you to think. What do you think, what images, or what do you think the Baptist and the Gospel writer were referring to when they said Lamb of God, what images immediately come to mind? If you want to, you can talk to your neighbour for about 20 seconds. There are a number of options. Alright. What do you think? Any ideas? Sacrifice. Now that is exactly the answer that I was expecting. A sacrificial lamb. So what? Now here's the next question. What kind of sacrifice? There were there a whole array of sacrifices in the Torah, some of which were for sin offerings, but actually most of them were thanksgiving offerings. So you were thinking of the Lamb of God being a sacrificial lamb for a sin offering. Take away the sin of the world. Right. So that's the first one. Most people think of that. Here's a second option. In John's Gospel, here's the one that makes the link between the Passover and Jesus' death. He makes that really clear. It's kind of implied in the Synoptic Gospels, but it's really blatant. And so one of the ways you can understand uh, the Lamb of God here is the Passover Lamb. Now the Passover Lamb is not a sin offering. The Passover Lamb is a symbol that reminds the people of Israel of God's great acts of liberation. They didn't have to do anything to deserve that. God just did it. God rescued them and continues to rescue them just as they did at the beginning of the Exodus story. So that's the second way that the Lamb of God can be understood. Passover Lamb. 
And the third way it can be understood is as a symbol of the Messiah. A popular symbol for the Messiah was a lamb or a ram. And the Messiah was the one who, in the power of God, would cast out all death and destruction and sin and bring in why did I forget that one? And bring in uh, God's reign of justice and peace. Those two things go together, justice and peace. Well, in John's Gospel, both the writer of the Gospel and the Baptist were probably thinking of not the sacrificial lamb, but mostly Jesus, Messiah, with a kind of side-serving of Jesus, the Passover lamb. And the sacrificial lamb, as a sin offering, was probably not implied in that at all. But our theology, particularly our atonement theology, blinds us to that because we read everything in terms of the point of Jesus is that he came to die and rise again so that we might have eternal life with God. In fact, some Christians would say the whole point is that Jesus came to die and rise again so that we might be have eternal life with God. Our sins are paid, the debt for our sins is paid, and we can have eternal life. Well, there are two comments I can make about that theology. The first is that there are a number of ways you can understand the phrase, Jesus died and rose again so that we might have eternal life. And the substitutionary theology is a relatively recent theology. The fact that Jesus had to pay our sin, pay the price of our sin, that only appears in theological writings after about a thousand AD. The first thousand years, Christian theologians understood that phrase differently. Because the question they were asked, they asked, who needs the price to be paid? Is it God or is it us? And their answer up to that point was, it's us. We need to be fully convinced that the price has been paid. That there is a price, we think there's a price, and the price needs to be paid. And it's only in the last thousand years that people have said, actually, God demanded a price. And the second thing is, if the whole point of Jesus' life and death and resurrection was so that he could die to pay the price then the Gospel writers wouldn't have bothered writing the Gospels. They would have just started with the crucifixion and resurrection and left it at that. But the Gospel writers actually thought there was more to Jesus' life than just his death and resurrection. So they wrote the Gospels. So it's a point, but it's not the whole point, And we need a bigger view of what's going on in the Gospels. So here's a second example, which wasn't in today's readings at all, and it comes from John 14, verse 6, which said, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's normally understood as a very exclusive saying. 
Especially if you hold on to a theology that says the whole point of Jesus' life and ministry was that he died and rose again to pay the price for our sins so that we might have eternal life with God. So, to get to God for eternal life, we can only go through Jesus. So that's, that's the only way. Here's the way, the truth, and the life. What happens, though, if we ask this question? In everything you know about the Gospels, how would you describe the way of Jesus? In everything that you know about the Gospels, how would you describe the way of Jesus? Turn around and talk to your neighbour for about a minute. How would you describe the way of Jesus? did he teach about his way? We say that people could follow him because he was perfect. He was. But what were some of the details? Or some of the stories that got him into grief? A humble servant. Yep. That's pretty radical. Humble servant. Not judgmental. Yep. What are some other things? Right. More than accepting of Samaritans, he used Samaritans as the heroes of the stories. And the point of that story was that our neighbour is everyone. Not just people like us, not just the people we think God should like, but actually everyone. So that's part of the way of Jesus, that everyone is important. What are some other ways? He was a healer. He was a healer? Yep. Part of the way of Jesus is healing. He lived out the fruits of the Spirit. He lived out the fruits of the Spirit. Absolutely. Gentleness and peace and all of those good things. He ate with all the wrong people. All the wrong people. All the people that society and the religious hierarchy had said are unimportant and should not be eaten with because they are beneath anything that God should care about. He ate with them, and he honoured them, and he blessed them by doing that. In Luke, he talks about how he's come to release captives, heal, give sight back to the blind. He has announced good news for the poor. All of that is the way of Jesus. In Matthew 25, he tells the story of the sheep and the goats. 
And the sheep and the goats aren't the ones that have accepted Lord Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. The sheep and the goats are the ones who feed the hungry, who visit the prisoner, who work with the poor. Because when you do that for the least of these, you do it to me. And when you don't do it for the least of these, you ignore me. That was the way of Jesus. So here's the next question. If that's the way of Jesus, what's the truth that that reveals to us? Epiphany is that in the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus, we have God revealed to us. So what does that teach us about God? It teaches us that God is a God who cares and loves for all people is passionately concerned for all people. That God is at work healing, healing the blind, healing the deaf. God is at work amongst the poorest. God is at work freeing the prisoner. And therefore, where is life? Life is when we follow the way of Jesus and honour the truth of who God is. No one can come to the Father except through the Son. That's true. But who is the Father we are coming to? And what is the way to the Father? The problem is, our theological baggage blinds us and says that this is a very exclusive saying. But it's not an exclusive saying if we ask the question... What do the Gospels teach us about the way of Jesus? Yes, Jesus is the way. What is that way? But what we do is we bring our nice, neat, safe theological answers. We read that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we go, well, I know what that means. And we never ask questions of it. And that leaves us feeling pretty safe and secure because we're on the winner's side. And it's all good. But if we do ask the questions, then we're left with an answer that most of us struggle to know what to do with, if we're honest. I can say that I struggle to know what to do with that. And it challenges me daily. What do I do with this answer? Because I'm pretty sure that most of the time I'm not living it out. Which means I'm not living the way of Jesus I am not honouring the truth, and I am not living the life that God offers me. Well, it seems to me that Epiphany is a time when we can examine some of our theological baggage. And we can ask, how does that baggage stop us asking good questions? How does this baggage stop us really receiving the divine revelation offered to us in the Gospels? What might I need to put down for a while so that I can receive that revelation and truly know who Jesus is so that in the midst of that I can truly know who God is? That is the invitation of Epiphany.